Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Thank you and good morning. Today we've got the distinct privilege of speaking with Larry Pearson, President and CEO of Independent Dealers Advantage, or IDA. It's a subprime auto finance company that purchases and services point-of-sale subprime indirect auto paper in the Southeast United States. Larry founded the company in January 2001 to purchase, underwrite, verify, and collect point-of-sale and bulk subprime indirect auto paper, managing the growth of IDA's portfolio to $20 million and outside servicing portfolios to $90 million consisting collectively of 11,200 accounts. IDA purchases and underwrites 500 accounts per month, and Larry is recognized as leader and authority in this subprime auto segment. Prior to his achievements in the subprime auto industry, Larry spent nearly 30 years in the insurance and healthcare services industry, buying, building, operating, and selling a variety of healthcare service companies in ophthalmology sectors. So he's had quite a wide variety of entrepreneurial experiences. Prior to all that, Larry earned a BS in industrial management at Georgia Tech in 1970, and he's a phenomenal and a rabid Yellow Jackets <laughs> fan. I think a few of his stories about the Yellow Jackets, and I'd like to also have him comment on this incredible trailer that he's created for his his family of fans. But let's start first. Uh, let, I guess let's let's talk about Georgia Tech first and understand what was it about your Georgia Tech experience that had an influence on your future career. And, and you're so passionate about it. Was there something special about that culture that really resonated with you, Larry, when you were there? Yes. Um, well, tech is, I think, a very special place anyway. For me, they really taught me how to think analytically and to think about things from a different perspective. And so that's the main takeaway from, from my years there. So that's where you got your analytical base. You're saying that served you so well in yes. both healthcare and subprime auto. Correct. So how, how did you go from industrial engineering to insurance and then to healthcare? I mean, was it strictly intellectual, the analytical aspect of it, or was it more serendipity and opportunistic? After I graduated from school, or actually while I was in school, from both high school and college, I worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield in the summers. And so that was my part-time job, and um, except for one year that uh, when I turned 15, my dad taught me a very valuable lesson. He was uh, worked in a cotton mill for 50 years, and, and we I grew up in a very low middle class, and I would say family, and you know, we didn't have a whole lot. And mm-hmm. so he had me go to work one summer mm-hmm. in the spinning room cleaning mm-hmm. lights in the cotton mill, mm-hmm. and it was about 130 degrees. And you were up over the spinning frames, and mm-hmm. it was just miserable. And it was, you know, all summer long, day in, day out. And he said, okay, you can have a career. You can spend the rest of your life doing this type of work, or mm-hmm. you can decide to aggressively pursue your education. Mm-hmm. And it was a very valuable lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you got into Blue Cross, I guess. Yeah, from- so so I, when I was at Blue Cross, I worked for a particular guy that I thought was a very good manager. So I went back to Blue Cross. They recruited me back, and, and I uh, started out in the underwriting department and then 
ended up managing the medical review department and worked for a particular guy. I wanted management experience. So once I graduated from tech, I realized I had a lot of other skills, but I didn't really understand how to manage people. Mm-hmm. And so I went back there specifically to work for a particular individual that I thought was a terrific manager. And I stayed there for three years. And then I decided to go back toward my education and went to work for Summer Iron Associates in Atlanta right. for a textile and apparel consulting firm. But this man who was your mentor, what were some of the lessons then that he taught you about management? How to deal with people. He was very forthright. You always knew exactly where you stood. He was always very direct in terms of you knew what you he expected of you and what you were supposed to do mm-hmm. and the time frame to do it in and the expected result. And and he had a, a big personality that didn't hurt him as well. Mm-hmm. But it was just a very valuable experience. I've learned over the years that there's a an awful lot of different approaches to management. And there are people who not very kind to people and you know they just simply look at it from an expectation of work and mm-hmm. then there are other people who try to have a deeper understanding of the person that that's working for them and uh, to get involved in at least caring about you know what's going on with that individual and that those are the things that i picked up on that has helped me so much you know as i think about it as it relates to the healthcare business or ida either one the example that you set you know, as the manager in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, your attitude about how you're approaching the business. And, and it's, you know, do you have a vision that you can relate to them that they can understand? Uh And then can you express and show that you care about on a personal level? Mm -hmm. And it's those types of things that he was very good at Mm -hmm. and helped me along a lot. So it's connecting that vision to a plan and to actions, and then, I guess, spreading that shared culture or values to the team that you're developing Correct. to build these businesses. So when was what was the first experience that you directly had a chance to kind of use some of those skills? I've been an entrepreneur once I left Blue Cross, really in the at Summer Iron Associates, even though you you know, work for another entity, the, the way they work was you would go to whether it was an apparel plan or a hospital or wherever. And in this case, we started out as in the apparel business and you would do a survey uh-huh. of a plant right. and get and set objectives that if they bought your work, then you had to go back and implement, make all the changes and achieve the results. And that was very, very valuable experience. Mm-hmm. And just in how to deal with people then, mm-hmm. because you're going into a plant, you have no authority over, you know, anyone there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to approach it from a very different perspective. You're making suggestions to them. You've got to convince them that you can help them do their job better mm-hmm. and that you can make their job easier mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. um, by reengineering their workstations and those types of things. So it was applicable almost immediately, you know, in my career. Well, when you look at Larry's resume, 
you can see that there were so many different experiences that you had in buying and selling companies, which involve the integration of different companies, different cultures. So I can imagine that was a a wonderful kind of melting pot to try to make these things work. Because so often people forget that M&A deals fail afterwards if there isn't that leadership, plus the engineering of processes that tie the two companies into a new company as well. And sometimes in business school, you know, we all focus on the the engineering and the financial aspects, the technical things without touching upon the softer personal things, which frankly, you know, you are known for having a family type culture at IDA. And I suspect that then was something that paid off in many of the deals that you achieved in your years in the healthcare industry. I learned very early that, you know, I wasn't the smartest guy. I could outwork my way back you know, to a level that I could achieve on the same level with those that were a lot smarter than I was. If you combine, you know, the work ethic with then the personal skills to be able to to create a vision and create a culture, you at least have the opportunity. And what I've always tried to do, things a little different. When we were buying hospitals, for example, you know, Hospital Corporation of America was just getting started and whether they should or whether you could, you know, own a public hospital because all the hospitals were public at that mm-hmm. time. And when we got into the business, you know, we decided that we wanted to do something a little different. Mm -hmm. And so we partnered with doctors Mm -hmm. and there was some Medicare fraud and abuse issues that you had to work around. But we figured out a way to do that and had partnerships with physicians in those hospitals. And they were and it caused us to be successful in every case but one. Or I've always just tried to approach the business, whether it was ophthalmology business, where you know, we built ophthalmology practices, but we built it very differently than working with a physician. We would put together a large network optometrist who could refer all their surgical cases and into that one practice. Mm-hmm. So instead of surgeon who's just starting doing 40 or 50 cataracts a year in the first year of work, he would do, you know, 500. So it was a different way to approach right. building a practice is the way we looked at it. And it was very successful. Uh-huh. And we built, you know, 16 practices around the country in 18 months. And they all did more than 500 cataracts in the very first year. Today, they're some of the largest practices around the country in those cities still doing, you know, two or 3,000, you know, cataracts a year. Did you have any obstacles though along the way? I mean, it sounds like a great success story, but certainly, you know, starting your own business, it's never, it never goes exactly the way you think. Do you have some examples you could share with our listeners where your leadership model was challenged? Well, it didn't work initially. I mean, if entrepreneurs would tell you they make every mistake you can possibly make, you know, along the way. And, and you just got to recognize your mistakes for what they are and learn from them and, and go on. And, mm-hmm. and and not let it become a failure. Right. For example, a second hospital that we bought, we did the same thing that we did in the first one. We bought a hospital. The first one was down in New Orleans, and it turned out with a group of doctors, and it turned out to be very, very successful. They filled the hospital up and always very busy, and, and we made you know, good money, and it was it was very successful. We go to Houston to do exactly the same thing. We recruit a group of docs. They're investors in, in the hospital with us. And six months, you know, the first six months, everything's great. And then all of a sudden, our census in the hospital drops in half. Uh-huh. And 
we bank with Citibank in New York, and all of a sudden we have a, a technical default on one of our covenants, even though we our company was strong enough we could make the payments for that hospital had a financial covenant violation or default. And I spent the worst six months of my life fighting with Citibank. Because they were going to call the note. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they did. But, you know, there was nothing they could do. And what happened was that group of doctors went and invested in another hospital a few miles away from us as well. So they thought they could split their patient base and that would just, they could make that work. And they couldn't. They couldn't. At least it didn't work for us. It may have worked for them, but it certainly didn't work for us. And so we ended up having to sell that hospital. And it took us about six months or so to do that. And it was just a miserable six months with the banks hounding you every single day. So did you lose money on that deal? We did, but that's just part of it. And so the lesson learned from that experience was... You better really know <laughs> your, <laughs> Do your, your due your, diligence on your, on your doctor partners. On your doctor partners. Yes. And maybe built in some guardrails about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's shift out subprime auto, Larry, because okay. you're the first entrepreneur I've met that's been so successful in a completely different vertical and also equally or even maybe more successful. And the story's not over yet, obviously, in well, subprime auto. How did you jump from healthcare to auto? Let me back up a minute. And before we do that, let me comment about, I built three different ophthalmology companies. The first was the referral center concept. And and that was different. The second one was very early in the physician practice management era. And we were buying physician practices. And what you would do is you would buy half of their income stream is what we were doing. And most all of the physician practice management companies were doing exactly the same thing. In our case, it was ophthalmology. So we would go to an ophthalmologist and maybe he was interested in retiring in two or three more years or maybe not. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was just wanted us to help him grow. So he was willing to sell us 50% of his income, sell us his practice. He could retain 50% of what he generated. And then we got the other 50% and we took over, you know, all the expenses of the operation. We grew that and eventually sold it. We ended up with about 40, 45 practices or so all over the country. The third, I tried to do a a different type of model because the 50% was too much is what Mm -hmm. we learned. Mm -hmm. And eventually the physician practice management model failed for that very reason. But I was early in, early out. So it was worked out fine. We sold the company and made good money off of it. But then the third try at that was to do a franchise type model and focus more on the amatory surgery centers and the laser vision correction facilities that would surround the hospital and ancillary services to that ophthalmology practice. We we, uh, moved to New York and Mm -hmm. worked with a group of doctors up there. They had a network of docs already in place, and we developed the Amatory Surgery Center, and we tried to develop that model, and we developed a laser vision correction center uh, that we opened and did 700 cases in the first couple months that we were open. So it was very successful, but the model didn't work. So that's when I decided to, to just get away from ophthalmology and started looking for something else to do Right, and, and ended up in, in the subprime auto space. Uh-huh. And so that leap to subprime auto, had you studied the market beforehand or was it an opportunity that just fell on your lap? I mean, no, we, we had invested in both a small finance company in the auto space, as well as a back to an individual in a car lot 
So we had some knowledge, you know, how the, the industry operated. And then uh, we brokered on the finance company side of it. We brokered loans. And actually, my wife worked both of those while I was still in the ophthalmology business. And I see. So when you know we sold we sold the uh, the last ophthalmology company, and I decided to to take some time off, and I started thinking about you know what I wanted to do. So I set a set of criteria. So I said, okay, no travel. I want to have one office. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be scattered all over the country. I want to have a business that I can scale to a certain size. Right. And I wanted to be able to do a family business. And I wanted to be able to go home at night and my phone not ring. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. you're, if you're in the acquisition side. Right. It always rings. It, it, I've it, been it, there. Yeah. It always rings. Yeah. It's exactly right. And particularly if you're working out on the West Coast. Yeah, no, these transactions are critical to the owners that you're serving. Yeah. Yeah, it's their whole net worth. So anyway, I ended up doing a floor plan business plan for a friend of mine. And the buy here, pay here. Yeah, in the car business. I finished that, and as, as I was working through that, I realized there was a need on the finance side, and I liked the finance side better. So I developed another business model and started out very small. And it's, it's interesting what happened. We had moved to Florida and we're living at the beach and our middle daughter was pregnant with twins and had a two-year-old. And she called and said, you got to come help. I can't pick up my two-year-old. She was huge. Right. So we moved, came back to Atlanta, moved in with them for about three months and stayed but you're still operating your finances? No, no, no. no. We we you were put on no, no, no. Oh. We no. We were just. This, I was just planning. This is in between. Yeah. Okay. At that. But time. you said your wife was laying the groundwork also at the same time. She had actually opened a car lot in Snellville. Okay. And in Georgia, and we ended up selling that to our oldest, oldest son. Right. So fast forward now to IDA. What what is your vision now going forward for IDA and? You know, what were some of the, the lessons you learned along the way that have helped you form this vision and make an IDA what it is today, which is, one of, again, one of the leading subprime kind of indirect lenders in the southeast? Well, we're pretty small, but today we have about $35 million that we have ownership in. Mm-hmm. And then we have another 15 to $20 million that we currently service for outside companies or mm-hmm joint venture partners. I want to grow that side of, of the business and the servicing side and particularly on the bulk side. It, we do both. We we do point of sale and we buy in bulk. Right. And on the point of sale side, the last couple of years have on the deep subprime paper, it has been a very difficult environment. A lot of the subprime companies have gone out of business. And so there's been some consolidation and down elimination of, of what's going on. 16 was slightly better. 17 was a little better in terms of the way the market is reacting. We saw defaults go up across the board, across the industry. So this is the bubble that everyone's talking about? Yes. Now, sometimes bubbles can be opportunities, though, right? Yes. They're not all bad, necessarily. So what? It was a double whammy due to the fact that at the same time defaults were up, then the value of used cars was going down. Mm Mm-hmm. So we saw from that 15 to 17, probably a 20% decline in, in, the, the, value. in the value of used cars. So uh-huh. you, you get a car back, you take it to the, to the market through the auction, and it brings way less than so what, it's huge financial pressure. Yes. On everybody, including yes. the lenders and, yes. and buyers. Yeah. 
But now we've changed what we are buying on the point of sale side. And mm-hmm. we've moved up the credit scale a mm-hmm. little bit. And, and our original intent was try to help this deep subprime customer. We wanted them to be customers with us one time. They typically have a problem as a result of some life-changing event. Mm-hmm. And their credit gets hit. And now they struggle to get things financed. Mm-hmm. And automobiles is no exception. You try to help them. If they'll make their car payment for 18 months on Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. their credit score will go up about 150 points, Mm -hmm. assuming everything else on their credit stays. To rehabilitate enough. So you're going through a rehabilitation process, Mm -hmm. yes. So that's interesting. So you're really doing something good for society, while at the same time it makes sense economically for IDA as well. So you've aligned something very good for the world, uh, while at the same time serving your investors and yourself well. That is correct. Helping people is very important to me. My faith is very important. Therefore, I feel like I'm challenged to to help people. And this was one of the ways that, that we could do it. And frequently, you know, we will have conversations with customers to make sure they have a, a, a good understanding of, you know, what they're getting into mm-hmm. and what they need to do to help themselves so that they only, you know, stay in the space for a little while. And then they can move up the credit, you know, chain as well. Right. Now, the auto bubble between 15 and 17 was certainly challenging for everyone in in the industry, but compared to 9-11 and the crash of 2008, I mean, how did you get through those crises at IDA? Because you started, I think, IDA in 2000, and then we had 9-11 in 2001, and then crash in 08. How did you deal with those very difficult circumstances? typically... History has shown that the deep subprime space outperforms the the rest of the market in those types of times. Where that's we, interesting because you think the contrary normally, we, wouldn't you? Yes, we got through 08 without any issue whatsoever uh-huh. until we had a bank go bad. Okay, I mean go under on us. Talk about adversity. One of the major issues that we've had at IDA was in 09. You know, we had a, a bank that we owed $6 million to tell us they would not renew our loan. Mm-hmm. We had 90 days to pay them off. And that is highly stressful. And you had a few and, sleepless nights. Yes. And that creates a lot of problems. How'd you get out of that, by the way? We ended up having enough loans that we could sell enough. And we had a relationship with Crescent Bank. In New Orleans? Down in New Orleans. Yes. We were servicing for them, selling loans to them and servicing for them. So they helped us and mm-hmm. they just stepped up and bought enough to, mm-hmm. to make it work for us. And we were able to pay mm-hmm. the bank off. We had to cut back. We instead, we were buying 450 loans a month at the time. And we went down to buying 70 mm-hmm. in one month. Mm-hmm. So it was very dramatic, cut mm-hmm. our staff in half, but then it was a rebuilding process. We learned a lot through that, right. and, but it wasn't customer related. It right. was just Purely related on the, the, on, the finance, on, the, yeah. on the bank side. And did you have a prior relationship with Crescent or was it something that you... No, we had been doing business with them for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. So we did have a good relationship. Uh-huh. And so that helped you get out of a, another yes. relationship, which was Correct. in trouble. Again, relationships seem to be like another common denominator here in, in your career and both opportunities and challenges. So Yes. I think that's true and pretty much across the board with everybody. Right. Larry, what are you reading these days? What books are on your nightstand? Well, recently I I spent a lot of time in the Bible. 
I have been, I'm up to Corinthians and, and I, I like some of the commentaries. So I read the Bible and then I go and I like John MacArthur. So I'll get his commentary on those, on the books and, and, okay. and read those. And, and I try to do that some every day. I'm also trying to read Flynn's books. Okay. Uh, you know, the Mitch Rapp series. Right. Yeah. Do you have a favorite passage in Corinthians that you're reading right now that I think Corinthians 13 is talking about the gifts has given us. So trying to discern what your spiritual gift is uh-huh. and then how you can apply that and what God wants you to do with it. So well, what's still- really interesting and sometimes people kid me because as you know, our company funds companies that buy debt. So we're in obviously the same space. People say, well, you're not really doing God's work, but I think you've started to draw a connection here between what you do at Buy Here, Pay Here. Very few people would associate Buy Here, Pay Here with the Bible. On the other hand, you've uncovered an opportunity with helping consumers rehabilitate their credit, which is a wonderful thing. And at the same time, you've been able to capitalize on the kind of the intersection of rehabilitating consumers that have bad credit with doing something good for your shareholders uh, as well and and creating a business, an IDA, that is successful for you, its employees as well, and making a difference in the market. So I have a feeling I'm going to tell my friend that tells me you're not doing God's work. Well, you haven't met Larry Pearson yet. <laughs> Larry Pearson has uh, the unique experience of using his spiritual gifts in his business, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Larry, do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners here today? For young people, you know, I think exposure, they start their career to as many different either management styles or just different ways to do things is very important to help to get them going in the right direction and help them, you know, understand. Um, sometimes it just seems you know, overwhelming and it's really not. And just try to find a good mentor. And that would be my advice. And I've been very blessed. And you've become a mentor yourself, it sounds like, to some of the people that you've been working with at your own company. I try. Yes. And then, of course, the other mentor you have is your spiritual mentor in the Bible. And yes. uh, it's very uplifting. On that note, I'd just like to thank you, Larry, for your time this morning, uh, sharing some very fascinating uh, lessons learned, both in healthcare, subprime auto. You've been a obviously very successful entrepreneur and engineer of multiple companies, and we look forward to the next chapter, both your spiritual life and your business life, because I don't think we've heard the end yet of what IDA is becoming and what it will be in the subprime auto industry. So we look forward to the, the next chapter in that story as well. Michael, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it, and I, I okay. appreciate very much you giving me the okay. opportunity. Thank, thank you so much, Larry. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.